Good morning. So going back to that opening Advent antiphon, come let us worship the Lord, the King who is to come. How many of you are here today and were not here last night? Okay, so just so you're aware, that's kind of our, our theme along with the come Holy Spirit, he will guide us to all truth. So for those of you who weren't here yesterday, one of the parables that I'm using throughout this time comes from the, the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 19. And it's about Jesus going away, but before he goes away, he gives his servants, he calls them to them, to himself, and gives them a sum of money to engage in activity while he's gone, and when he comes back in his kingship, he will have a reckoning or an accounting. What did you do? And so that's kind of what this Advent theme is about. So the, come let us worship the Lord. This morning's talk, I'm going to talk about us. Who are we? It's important to know that each one of us are human persons. And to act as human persons is a necessary thing. And so when this antiphon comes up, come let us worship the Lord, we're talking about us as human persons worshiping another or other persons, divine persons. This right now we're speaking about, come let us worship the Lord, the King who is to come. We're talking about the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. So it's important for us to know what does it mean for me to be a person and therefore, how do I as a person worship another person, a divine person, the Lord? So this morning's talk is basically, again, we're children of our Heavenly Father. Each one of us has been given the gift of life as a person. But oftentimes, we don't even know who we are as human persons. Maybe we've never sat down and um, either been taught or looked at it. Who am I? Why do I act the way that I act? Whether sometimes I act for things that I want to do or sometimes I don't do the things that I don't want to do. Sometimes I do the things I don't want to do. What's going on? Right? So we'll just start with basics of human persons. Okay, a human person, we have a body. The body is our visible part. Most of our body is visible. I mean, doctors can see more of our body than we could if they open us up and do surgery or something. But as a, as a person, we have a body, a human person, and most of what comes to us comes to us through our senses. Our senses are just part of our body, right? our eyes, our ears, our mouth, our skin. I'm forgetting what the last sense is. Taste. <laughs> Thank you. Taste, smell, sight, feeling, hearing. Most of us as persons relate on that level pretty well. I mean, it, 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 we just grow up with that. 
with our bodies. It's, it's easy. Most of the world recognizes, most human persons recognize they have a body. We also have a soul. Each person has a soul right from the very moment of conception until eternity. We can never lose our soul. And our soul also has ways that we engage and take in experiences. And our soul is basically broken out down into two things. We have five senses. We have two parts or two functions of our soul. And theologically, a lot of this morning part, this first half of the morning talk is going to be a little bit about just education. Then we're going to go for experiences, okay? We have a mind and a will, or a mind, and we also call the will our heart. And our mind has specific functions to it. With our mind, it works through our brain, and with our mind, we reach out to truth. We seek truth with our mind. That's part of our soul. So with our mind, we can think, we can remember, we can speculate, we can imagine, we seek truth, we search for solutions, we evaluate, we analyze. And as I said last night, men would tend to be much stronger in activity through their mind. The soul in the part of the heart or the will is that part of us that reaches out to goodness. So the mind, that part of our soul, reaches out to truth. The heart or the will reaches out for goodness. And they're different activities, just like hearing and sight are different. So with our heart, this is where we believe. The heart is where we trust, where we love, where we obey, where we forgive, where we are grateful where we are reverent, where we worship, where we cope, where we carry out disciplines. And it's the heart, the heart, when we're talking about this part of the soul, the heart is the place for human persons that is different from every other creature. It is the seat of freedom. So we have a, a body, we have a soul, our soul is broken up, we break it up into two different uh, categories, our mind and our heart. But I am a person. I am not my body. I am not my soul. I am a person. And as a person, I will survive death even though my body is separated from my soul. I will still be a person, but I will be disintegrated until the final return and the resurrection. So I have a body, I have a soul which means I have a, a will, 
and I have a mind, and it's only in reference to my person, myself, that I can say I am. The others are what's. My soul is a what. My body is a what. And it's for me to be able to govern or be in control of my what's, not my what's in control of my person. If you've ever seen, this is a funny kind of a thing, but in the Bronx, people have huge dogs, even though there's no real place to walk them. They walk them on the sidewalk, and the dogs are big. They're like bulldogs and Rottweilers. I don't know where they fit them in their apartments. But every once in a while, you'll see walking down the street the dog pulling the person. The person is not in control of the dog. And that's not how it's supposed to be. And I've actually met people who are controlled more by their what's than by who they are. And this area that is most susceptible, which was most affected by that break of relationship from the very beginning, is another part of me as a person, a what that I have, and it's called our emotions. Emotions are not part of our body. Emotions are not part of our soul. But they are affected by both. In Greek, we call it the psyche. You're a, a psychologist is the one who deals with those things, the doctor of that part of us as persons. And it's our, it's our emotions, or the catechism also says, there's many synonyms, and we call them different things. Sometimes we call them feelings. Sometimes we call them affections. Sometimes we call them emotions. But when I'm talking in this talk, I'll refer to them as emotions, because right now that's, that's a popular way of referring to them. And emotions are part of us. They're like little motors within us, little psychological motors that are turned on and give us energy to do certain things. So St. Thomas Aquinas uh, breaks our emotions up into seven basic emotions. Sorry, nine basic emotions. And they generally go in pairs. Love and hate. Joy and sorrow. Hope and despair. Fear and courage. And the only one that's not paired with anything else is anger. How many of you would say that emotions are good? How many of you would say that anger is good? Hatred. Is hatred good? Is despair good? Okay, so we need this teaching, right? All our emotions are good. They can be disordered, but in themselves, we are created as persons, and they're given to us for a purpose. And miseducation or misinformation 
because of our emotions and not being aware of who we are as a person, our emotions can be like a Rottweiler or a bulldog, and they pull us in directions that we do not want to go, but sometimes we've hyper-developed them or given them um, unrestrained um, permission to guide us into areas where we don't want to go. And that's not how it's supposed to be. Right? So what do we do about that? Our emotions, like I said, our little motors that perceive certain things and they turn on. And they can be perceived through our body. Maybe I see something. Maybe I hear something. Maybe I feel something. Or they can also be affected by our soul. Sometimes an activity of the mind is memory. Our memory can affect our emotions even if the reality is not present. So sometimes our past, and when we as persons recall past events, they can start up these little motors. Or we can speculate or imagine. Our imagination, which is part of our person, can also set off or trigger our emotions because we can speculate conversations and we can become fearful. I don't know what that person's going to say and therefore I don't know, but it's affecting me in the present. And my person is affected by my emotions and if I'm not guiding my emotions by reason, my emotions are guiding me, and they're not supposed to do that. They're supposed to be an aid for us, depending on what the emotion is triggered by. So, most of you said that anger, hatred, despair are not good things. Now, if you come to me after this talk and you confess anger... I'm going to send you back in here and, and to work things out, right? Okay, what are the emotions? Somehow we perceive something and it turns this little motor on. Love is triggered when we experience a good there's a perception of a good, and the emotion of love turns on. So then we ask, what is it that I should do to bring, because love is it's a little motor. It gives us the ability to make a choice to do something. All of our emotions are asking for guidance to bring them to their completion. Okay, Hatred. It doesn't sound like it's a good emotion, right? But hatred is the emotion that you should experience towards an evil opposed to the good. 
If you experience or are witnessing an evil and you do not hate that evil, there's something wrong with you. Hatred helps us to overcome evils. It does not feel good, but it is good. And it helps us to make choices. All of our emotions help us to make choices. Okay. Joy. Joy is the experience or the witnessing of a present good. Hope is recognizing a good that is possible but not yet present. Now, has anyone ever heard that despair is a mortal sin? Has anyone ever heard that? Okay, a few people. It's, it's actually, I mean, there's a certain truth to that if you know what despair we're talking about. Okay, hope and despair as emotions are very similar. We perceive a good that we do not have present. Okay, Hope and despair are similar in a second stage. It takes some effort or sacrifice to get the good that we perceive and desire but not yet have. There's a cost to that good that is still in the future. Hope and despair are different in the sense of the possibility of achieving that. Let me give you a little example. If you're growing up and you want to be, I'm going to go for the guys here, if you want to be a professional football player when you're a little kid and you're throwing the football around and you're practicing all the time, okay, and you really, you hope to be a professional, you hope to play for the NFL, okay, so you're practicing and you're practicing and by the time you're a senior in high school, you still can't make the JV team. There is a real possibility that that good that you hope for is impossible for you. Despair recognizes the good that we're hoping for as impossible, and it helps us to make a decision. Despair does not feel good but it is good because it helps us to make a decision in the present to suffer the loss or the recognition that this is impossible for me, therefore I must choose a different good that is possible. Do you see why despair is good? Despair does not feel good, but it gives us that energy to be able to choose another good. And once I choose that other good and I let go of that impossible good, the little engine shuts off. And then I can start to settle and move forward. Despair as a mortal sin, theologically, is... I despair of eternal life. If you despair of eternal life, let's go through this process. 
eternal life is a possible good, but it is impossible for us. It is impossible for human persons to get to heaven without God's grace. With God's grace, it is possible. But if I rely only on what my capacities are and I despair, unfortunately, that's why we call it a mortal sin. You're relying on your own self without the help of God, and it's true. You can despair of that, and it's true. But that's not what's on offer. So if you hear despair is a bad thing, make sure you're talking about the right thing. Are you talking about the emotion, the human emotion of despair, or are you talking about a theological vice of despair? Okay? We use the same word. Oftentimes, there's more than one definition of a word. Let me talk about one of the things that most people, well, before I get to that one, fear. Fear is a very common emotion. Fear is the experience of weak humanity when it feels afraid of suffering something it does not want to happen. We are afraid or made afraid because of someone more powerful, an attack on us from one that is stronger, because of sickness, encountering a wild beast, suffering evil in any form. And this is not taught to us. It's an emotion. It's a perception. And fear gives us energy. Has anyone here been afraid and you start to shake or sometimes you've been so afraid that your voice will start to crack? Okay. It's energy to do what? To make a decision. You either fight or flight. And then once you make the decision you'll start to see the little motor can go off and oftentimes after you've made a decision, your body will also respond and you'll go. <sighs> the difficulty is if we are afraid and we never make decisions. The motor does not shut off and we continue to experience this internal movement and fear when we cannot perceive what it is. It's easy enough. If there's a, a Wattweiler coming at me barking with his teeth, like I can recognize and I have a decision to make about that thing. Anxiety is fear and I don't know what triggered it. Anxiety is an emotion that many people suffer from because they're not recognizing what they're afraid of or they're afraid of making a decision one way or the other. And that's not how we're supposed to be. Now here's the one that most people, I mean, I hear confessions a lot and a lot of people will confess anger. Father, forgive me, I've been angry. Anger is not a sin. It's the choice that you make when you're angry. That can either be a virtue or a vice. If you choose the vice, then confess it. 
but don't tell me that you were angry. Tell me that you, in your anger, slapped a person. There is your decision. Unless you slap the person because they were holding a gun towards you and you slapped them and you ran, then that's not a vice. There we go is a virtue. Right? So anger can lead us, depending on what my person, I as a person, am making decisions upon what I'm encountering in the present, or if it's for, triggered from my soul, from the past, or from the future because of my memory or my imagination. Okay? So what is anger? Anger is a perception of unjustice or unfairness or someone is being hurt. So let's just take a little bit of an interior look of what the anger looks like when I encounter it as a person. I'm going to give you a little story right now. I told you I live in the Bronx. If you've been to one of these conferences with me before, you've already heard the story. So, I live in Our Lady, at this point in the story, I lived at Our Lady of the Angels Friary on 155th Street in the Bronx. And it's, it's a rough neighborhood, lots of projects around. And we were having um, our building, it's like 100, a little over 100 years old, and it had to be repointed, the bricks. So scaffolding was up in front of the place, and while the scaffolding was up, the door was blocked by the scaffolding, the front door. So we couldn't use the front door. We had to use the back door. And the property where we're at, we're living in the old convent. And then there's a courtyard. And then there's the church. And the church has an entrance on 156th. So we can always use that entrance while the door is blocked on 155th. So I'm up on the second floor in the library. And I'm looking down on the street, and across the street I see what looks to be like about a 17-year-old boy, young man, and a five-year-old little girl. And they're coming together, and he gives her one of those little, um, like, lick-on, stick-on tattoos, you know, that you get in Cracker Jacks. You lick it, and it's like a temporary tattoo, right? And tattoos are all the rage in the Bronx. So kids, little children, love to act like older people. So the tattoos are very popular. But I know that in our neighborhood, when, when people do that, they're, they're training little kids to be addicts, right? So when they lick the tattoo, it's laced. Now, should I be angry? I should be angry. And anger is a good thing. It gives me the energy to make a decision because I have perceived something that is unjust and something that where someone is hurting someone else, even if it's not physically hurting them at this moment. I have to make a decision. And I can experience the anger in my body, right? I, I, get, I get nervous. There's, there is a physical, a physiological effect upon my body, and I have to make a decision. 
So let's walk through a couple of these scenarios. I'm going to go out and confront this 17-year-old. So I go downstairs, but I can't get out the front door because the door is blocked by the scaffolding. So I have to run out the back, through the courtyard, back through the front door of the church, and then run around the block, and then I come back, and the first scenario is I come and I tackle the 17-year-old, and the police are just a block over, so I call for help. And there, once I do that, my anger can shut off because I've brought to conclusion that which I perceived was unjust and I brought about the justice that I could bring about, that I could see at that point by my reason. Okay, another scenario. I run around the street and I run around the corner and I see shining something glimmering from underneath this guy's belt and I recognize it's a gun. So, therefore, not only am I angry, but then I perceive something that triggers my fear. So then I've got two different emotions going on interiorly. Anger and fear. And I have to make a decision. What's my decision? If it's fear and I choose courage and I use it, then I can come to the same conclusion and both of those little motors shut off. And then I'm emotionally exhausted. But I've brought them to their conclusion, so they've shut down. And I can continue on. And I've done actually something that's good. My emotions are helpful for me to grow in virtue. But... What if, by fear, I am hyper-developed in fear because of my past decisions, and fear is like that Rottweiler pulling me, and because of my fear, I stop in my tracks, and I don't want to deal with this injustice, so I turn around and I walk away as if nothing happened, and therefore, my fear shuts off but my anger does not. So then, that night, I go back to the friary, and I'm sitting down at the dinner table, and I ask one of the brothers, could you pass me the butter, please? And the butter comes over to me, and some idiot has left crumbs on the butter. <laughs> and I explode. And it has nothing to do with crumbs on the butter. It's because I am not dealing and I have not dealt with the emotion of anger that was triggered by that and I'm carrying it with me and because I'm not dealing with it, then I'm becoming unjust to those that I live with. I'm actually causing them to be justly angry with me because of my decisions that I've made as a person or of my indecisions that I've made as a person. I've chosen not to deal with this 
And therefore, I become the object that is justly angering my brothers or your family members. And that's where it becomes sinful. Not because you want it to be sinful, but because as a person, somehow you've lost control, we've lost control of our emotions, of our human nature. Now, all of this, my brothers and sisters, have nothing to do, has nothing to do with being a child of God. This doesn't, this doesn't have anything to do with our baptism. This is each human person. And sometimes there are people that are not baptized that are more virtuous than the children of God. You don't even have to be baptized to know and to control your emotions. We should be doing this because we're human. We're not animals. Animals react. They don't respond. Responding is what a human person does. Our emotions are ruled over or guided over by our reason. Our person makes choices. Now, what happens to us as children of God? This, what I'm talking about right now, is a human person. And by our baptism, if we fall into this kind of a pattern, we have graces because of our baptism available to us that others who are not baptized do not have available to them. By our baptism, we as persons are given the ability to have graces or gifts or strengths to help us to bring ourselves under our rule. Has anyone ever heard, as baptized children of God, that you are priest, prophet, and king? Okay, some of you have heard that, some of you have not heard that. What I'm talking about right now is our kingly function, or that function that brings us under our own rule, the ability to govern myself, my, my interior, all those what's that I have, whether it be my body, my mind, my heart, my emotions, I as a person have the ability because of our baptism to engage a divine person. And it is the Holy Spirit that gives us gifts. The types of graces that are available in this area are what we would call gifts of the Holy Spirit. There are four gifts that help us in our mind, and there are three gifts that help us with our heart as persons. But as a person, I have to ask for them from another person. The Holy Spirit is a divine person who during, in between this first coming and the second coming, 
Jesus said, I will send you the paraclete, and he will guide you into all truth. And by our very baptism, we have been given the gift of being in relation with divine persons. Bringing us, restoring us slowly back to that original conversation, that original relationship. And then I also will have a mission to be able to share in Christ's mission of remedy. But the first remedy is towards ourself. How does this work? Well, if you're baptized, you can go to confession. If you're not baptized, you can't go to confession. Baptism opens us up to the sacramental life. The unbaptized cannot receive any sacrament. The baptized can receive any sacrament. If you have made a fault, you've chosen vice, or somehow you've gotten over a hyper um, educated or um, in a certain um, emotion, some people are hyper developed in fear. Our culture develops fear in us. Go to confession to begin the process. Confession removes guilt. It doesn't restore what was taken. That's part of restitution. And it's making decisions. If you have been angry and you have um, shouted and yelled at people because of the crumbs on the butter, go to confession. But that's not it. That restores that relationship between God and yourself. There's also the restoration between human persons that needs to take place. Confession does not replace the restoration between human persons. Grace does not substitute for nature. Grace builds upon nature. It does not replace it. To replace nature with grace is to be spiritual or to spiritualize things, which is not true to human nature. We are natural, we have a nature, but we've also been given, adopted, a divine nature that we need to grow and develop and mature in. So, let's go back to that tattoo, monger, or whatever. How about another scenario? I go and I run around the corner and I go and the little girl and the 17-year-old are gone. Then what? How can I go and bring about a stop to the injustice or a stop to the hurt when all of a sudden, because I had to run around the whole block, I'm there and there's nothing that can be done. They're gone and I didn't know who they were. Well, that anger is still going on inside of me. What do I do with it? 
Well, here is where, as baptized children of God, we can begin to integrate ourselves in this priest, prophet, and king. So this kingly function, I'm beginning to understand what's going on interiorly, and I'm beginning as a person to make decisions, my kingly function. Well, I can begin to integrate that with my priestly function. How many of you think you are priests? Boy, this is going to be a big learning retreat. By our baptism, we are all, we all share in the common priesthood of Jesus Christ. By our baptism. I have an ordination, so I have a ministerial priesthood that is different from my other priesthood that I got from my baptism. Right? My, my baptismal character, I'm a priest, a prophet, and a king. But also because part of my prophetic, and we'll get to this later this afternoon, Part of that prophetic character is that I was called as a ministerial priest to serve your priesthood. But if you're not living out your priesthood, gosh, creation is longing for you to do that. And here's an opportunity. When you're angry and there's nothing you can do naturally about it, you walk there. Has anyone ever heard of an old-fashioned saying, Offer it up. Okay, so you have heard of that before. You, and when you do that, it's a priestly action, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it from a little bit of a different aspect. And what does that mean, offer it up? Okay. Offerings are sacrifices. Offerings are an act of worship. Okay, what is it that a a priest, all of us, by our common priesthood, there are, there are priests that aren't even Catholic. There are priests that aren't even Christian. There are all kinds of pagan priests. There are very specific things that priests do. They offer sacrifices to someone. Okay? We're offering a sacrifice to God. What is the sacrifice that we're offering here? Okay, prayer, ourselves. I'm actually going to offer the anger. My anger is not comfortable because I cannot bring it to its conclusion. Therefore, in justice, I must suffer it. And this costs me something. And I'm going to offer this to God. I can offer it to God the Father. I can offer it to God the Son. I can offer it to the Holy Spirit. I'm going to offer it to a person. And I'm going to offer this for someone. Who am I going to offer it for? Maybe the little girl. Maybe the 17-year-old. Maybe the parents of the 5-year-old that have no idea that their child is being drawn into um, an addiction problem. 
Maybe I'm going to offer it. This is one of my special ones that I do because sometimes I don't know how to pray for people as well as I should or could. I generally offer, and this is because um, we have a lot more that's available to us than we can see. And I generally offer things for souls that are in purgatory for those specific problems that I don't know how to deal with. There are people that have been drug dealers in purgatory because they've received the mercy of God and they can no longer pray for themselves. How can I help them best? By offering prayers for them, offering sacrifices for them, but in, they're in the full communion and they can pray for others, they cannot pray for themselves. And they know what that drug dealer needs that 17-year-old was probably a five-year-old at some point. And we hate him, right? No. We hate his behavior. We need, I pray, I pray a lot to the souls in purgatory that we're in those situations because I've never been a drug dealer. I don't know what kind of graces they need to be able to make decisions in the situation that they find themselves in. But those that have been there, I will pray for them that they can pray. This is how we begin to make spiritual sacrifices that can be and are virtuous choices because of situations that I've perceived that trigger emotions. And I can't bring them to a natural conclusion. If I can bring things to a natural conclusion, I must. But when things do not present themselves to a natural conclusion, then I and we as children of God have this kingly function of ruling over ourselves and making decisions, and we begin to integrate it with our priestly function. And we become more integrated as persons. And this is a good thing. We're created for life. We're created for love. And we're created to share and bring about restoration and renewal here in Los Angeles or San Bernardino or San Diego or California or if you're from Las Vegas. I'm not sure. I've done a retreat here from before when people were coming from Las Vegas. It's not somewhere far away. You have, I have a share in bringing about the remedy to that first problem, the break of relationship with God that we're all created to experience and to be restored to that. And the remedy is here. But unfortunately, we, don't, we often don't know what's before us. And we're so distracted sometimes by our mind that we're not living as integrated persons. And sometimes, as persons, we've lost control. And that's what Advent, that's what this time of retreat is helping us to do. It's to step back as persons 
and to ask for this gift of the Holy Spirit who will lead us into truth and strengthen us to live an integrated life and to be a person fully alive. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.